ongoing practice where we're constantly updating our ratings. So what we're all about is the transparency of that process and the accountability. And we want people to game our system. Unlike an algorithm, A, we call people for comment, and B, we want them to game the system. To put a number on, on that of the 2,300 websites that we've rated, more than 500 of them, after engaging with our analysts, has changed one or more of their own journalistic practices. Very small websites, large ones, um, once they understand uh, the criteria that we use, in many, many cases now are adjusting their journalistic practice, which you know we think is, in the long run, going to help reestablish trust in news organizations that deserve to be more trusted than they are now. Episode 253 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I should say at the outset that any resemblance between uh, the views we expressed here and the views of our clients, our uh, domestic partners, our uh, law firms, uh, and other institutions is purely coincidental, and most of them would disavow it uh, heartily. Uh, uh, today, uh, uh, we'll be interviewing Gordon Kravitz and Steve Brill, two remarkably accomplished uh, journalists and um, entrepreneurs, uh, uh, talking about their latest venture, uh, NewsGuard, which is uh, uh, jumped in where uh, uh, Silicon Valley fears to tread on content uh, evaluation. Uh, but for the news roundup, before we get there, uh, we've got Nick Weaver from UC Berkeley. We've got Gus Hurwitz from the University of Nebraska. And for the first time on the show, we've got Klon Kitchen, who's uh, a senior research fellow um, uh, for technology, national security, and science policy at the Heritage Foundation. And as I remember, Klon, you come uh, from, uh, is it Senator Sass's uh, office before uh, you went to Heritage? That's right. I was his national security advisor, and before that, 15 years in the U.S. intelligence community. Terrific. Uh, and let me ask the, the question that everybody is going to ask you. Why did your parents choose Klon for your first name? <laughs> so I'm actually a third. My grandfather and my father are, are also Klon. Uh, and so it's a it's a family name, but my son's name is Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> and very very glad he is, I'm sure. Uh, at, at least at least until he gets to be about 18, and then he may say, "Oh yeah, I would have taken Klein. Uh And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, um, so why don't we jump right in? Russia is getting weirder all the time. Uh, uh, they really have taken an off ramp. Uh, uh, on on the internet, uh, and uh, uh, we seem to be speeding them down. It uh, uh, Klon uh, Cyber Command has been bragging through anonymous leaks, but nonetheless bragging about what it did to take down troll operations around the uh, 2018 election. Uh, and uh, th there've been a lot of reactions to that, uh, but nobody has said, "Well, you went too far." Yeah, that's right. So uh, election day last year, uh, and maybe for even a few days after that, Cybercom is it's come out now. They cut off internet access to the Russian Internet Research Agency, which of course is the, the organization that was doing some uh, cyber hijinks during the 2016 election. Some are criticizing uh, this this operation as being too little to make any difference and not big enough to actually deter Russia from political interference. But I'd make kind of three observations in that regard. Number one. This, is cyber, this cybercom op is really the first public example 
of the Pentagon beginning to operationalize its new strategy of defending forward. And, you know, in my view, it's nice to see DOD beginning to stretch their legs. Mm -hmm. Two, this was almost assuredly only part of a broader effort. These types of harassing operations can actually be really helpful for future planning because when you conduct them, you're able to watch the target react and you're able to observe their crisis response and their decision-making process. And you integrate those insights into future operations. You know, and then finally, it seems to me that this operation was primarily about signaling to the Russians that our rules of engagement are, in fact, changing. And uh, there's been other press reporting that said U.S. Cybercom had been privately sending signals to Russian and even individual Russian cyber operators that our online efforts were going to be getting more aggressive. And I suspect this operation was an element of that larger message. Yeah, that that that, that all sounds uh, um, about right. Uh, Paul Rosenzweig uh, uh, made the point in Lawfare that uh, this is a big deal from the point of view of crossing lines that we had previously not crossed. Um, uh, Nick, uh, what's your sense of uh, uh, the lessons to be drawn from this story? Well, there's a couple of weirdnesses of we don't know what was actually done. So if it was just a DOS attack knocking their network offline, any kid in a basement can do that. That's not a sophisticated attack, and it's akin to basically somebody ripping down a poster. Yeah, I, uh, if you wanted DDoS as a service, you could probably have have bought that operation for what uh, twenty four hours of DDoSing would cost you how much? Certainly less than a thousand uh, bucks. A couple Unless hundred, Brian Krebs steps that. in to stop you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 Krebs is a dangerous man, uh, uh, as one of the stories we'll cover in a bit uh, uh, talks about. I've seen some secondhand reports that we might have wiped some hard drives, but that would actually be really disturbing because, A, by the time Election Day comes along, that's not going to have a significant impact, and B, that blew our access. So there's always the compromise of do an effect versus maintain access, and I worry that there may have been the wrong decision made. Well, kill versus exploit is always a hard uh, uh, choice, and... uh... I expect Cyber Command is always going to be in favor of kill, and NSA is going to make the argument for uh, exploit. Luckily, the same guy is is heading both organizations, so you'd think that he at least would uh, have an interest in getting the answer right. We can hope. Yeah, I, and I, I do think you're right to, that by the time they were taking down uh, and maybe bricking uh, computers in uh, uh, St. Petersburg – Whatever damage the troll farm was going to try to do had already been done. They they were not so much about hacking our electoral um, infrastructure as in spreading memes that would divide the country and uh, produce bizarre electoral results. And, and that damage had been done by then. And even if you're going to be hacking election systems, you will have done the damage weeks before the election. So that's a, that's a good question. Klon, what do you think? What What is the thinking in taking them down on that particular day? Was that just a, a, a kind of sack dance over the prone figure of the IRA? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the points that you both have raised are, are, are right on in the sense of I don't think this was fundamentally about decisively preventing the IRA from, from you know, kind of interfering in the elections because most of that groundwork and, and effort had already been done. I go back to the point of this being, one, 
signaling that, hey, there's, there's new rules of engagement in effect for us and we're serious and here's a demonstration of that. But then two, I have to imagine that there are um, some secondary and even tertiary operational activities going on in conjunction with this where the value uh, cost calculation was made in regards to access versus, um, versus opportunity to exploit. I mean, just generally speaking, having participated in some of these kind of decisions in the past, it's a pretty rigorous debate. And while there, there are certainly differences between DOD and, uh, and kind of uh, headquarters NSA on, on access, things like this, I imagine that, uh, that there, were, there were other activities that were a part of this. And I would be really surprised if this were just kind of a singular, you know, one-off. Yeah, the, it, it appears that, um, you know, at a more sophisticated level, they did to some of the uh, uh, the Russian hackers what uh, uh, we did to Saddam Hussein's generals, uh, um, get inside their communications networks and say, by the way, we're watching and here are the instructions for how to surrender. Um, and it, it, it it's certainly bad for morale uh, if you do that to to an adversary. And, and and you know the the Russians are really digging in though for a a a fight. They have tested now, or they're in the process of testing a complete separation from the global internet, so that they can run their own net. Uh, and I suspect you know they've actually said it's because we're under attack by the United States uh, that we have to do this. Uh, Nick, what do you think the prospects for actually doing that and the value of doing that will turn out to be for Russian uh, 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 cyber adversaries? I don't know. It's hard to tell what Russia is trying to do with sort of the cutoff. I think they're basically trying to replicate the China model, where you have a very restricted internal internet um, dominated by local companies, and you use your uh, network controls as much to ensure that the local companies that will cooperate with you are the ones that get established. Yeah, um, they're in a tough spot because uh, you know, of course, they're not going to use American infrastructure, but the alternative is Chinese infrastructure, and uh, they're no more interested in that than they are in American infrastructure. So, uh, building their own third uh, system is going to be really hard. True, although the censorship infrastructure is pretty simple and you can build that on top of whatever kit you already have. So the other the other thing that the other sign that Russia has kind of um, decided it's in the equivalent of Cold War II is the remarkable treason trial that they uh, launched against a member of uh, the intelligence community and a member of Kaspersky uh, for their cooperation with U.S. law enforcement on uh, uh, you know anti spam investigations. Uh, uh, they they sentenced uh, people to as much as 22 years. Uh, um, Klan, is this a surprise? Um, uh, or is this just uh, the Russians saying, whatever you thought, uh, whatever cooperation you thought with the uh, Americans was appropriate, you're wrong? Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think the Russian government's saying that. So a lot of the story uh, about uh, Ruslan Stoyanov and Sergei Mikhailov, uh, which were these Kaspersky researchers who were arrested in 2016 by the FSB for you know treason, um, it's associated with some information that they provided to the FBI, who was in investigating uh, the man you mentioned, Pavel Brubulevsky, uh, who was this you know global spam purveyor. Yeah. There's all kinds of domestic political 
intrigue associated with all this. So Rublinsky, the spam guy, is well connected. He's a he's a senior business person inside of Russia, and you know Brian Krebs, among others, has has even suggested that it may have been Rublinsky who was uh, you know kind of calling attention to the work that these that these um, Kaspersky guys had provided to the FBI and had maybe orchestrated their their um, their arrest and, and ultimate imprisonment. Now the challenge with this is is that all of this, both the the charges and the trials, are being classified in Russia and they're happening in secret. And so it's it's really difficult to kind of get any uh, meaningful awareness of of what the details are or or what's going on. But there's no doubt that you know if you're an internet or tech company operating in Russia, you have a lot of political variables to account for, uh, and that includes having employees arrested for you know because they're involved in political blood feuds. Yeah, though, though clearly there is some kind of blood feud going on here, and it may well be that uh, it was an, a, another crook who'd already been arrested and was serving his time who got the guys who busted him um, uh, arrested and sentenced to much longer than than he is going to serve. Uh, yeah, the, the, a deeply Russian story. Uh, uh, all of the paranoia uh, and the obscurity and the mixing of criminal and state authority that you'd expect in a Russian story. So let's move to um, U.S. government. Uh, the FTC is going to launch, I guess it's a really an internal tech competition task force, which is their way of saying, we're really interested in how to ensure competition in the tech sector. Uh, uh, Gus, uh, is this just a uh, uh, rearranging of deck chairs, or is there something that we should expect from this? So at this point, I think we have about as much visibility into this as we have into uh, uh, Russian uh, treason trials. Um, there's a, a lot of possibilities for what this could be about, and um, no one I've spoken to really has a, a good sense of what to expect from this. As an initial matter, it's not just about competition. It's about uh, uh, tech consumer protection and competition regulation, um, as far as I understand. Simplest understanding or explanation of what it is, is, as you say, a internal reorganization or shuffling of chairs a bit, um, pulling about, I uh, understand it's uh, 17 attorneys from across the agency in to work on uh, these issues. And who knows, this could just be um, some window dressing to make it look like, hey, we're taking a tech seriously. Um, Congress, we get it. You're concerned about this stuff. Uh, international peers, we get it. You're concerned about this stuff. See, we are too. It could be uh, much more aggressive than that. Um, it all depends on uh, who those uh, 17 attorneys being brought in uh, to work on this uh, are going to be. My own inclination, my uh, feeling is that uh, Chairman Simons wants uh, a bit of blood. He wants a couple of uh, big cases brought and that the marching orders for this group uh, uh, are going to be bring me two or three major cases. Don't care what they are, but I want them. Uh, that's, uh, however, just um, reading tea leaves. And uh, uh, I've certainly heard other folks reading the tea leaves differently. Okay. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, I, my sense is that uh, this is still a, a set of FTC commissioners who believe in uh, uh, Robert Bork's view of uh, uh, antitrust. Uh, and uh, so if they decide to bring a case, it'll be a case that stands up to the sort of uh, 
consumer welfare analysis, which may be why the consumer protection analysis is part of this. Uh, but it will be interesting to see because the, the, the time is right politically for doing something. It's just not clear uh, uh, what the FTC will be comfortable with uh, politically and ideologically. Yeah, and probably our first uh, indication of what this is uh, ultimately going to be will be uh, the potential uh, – we've been hearing potentially billions of dollars fine against um, FTC uh, for violation of consent decree stuff. Um, if that is a major fine, if it's more than a slap on the wrist, that suggests, uh, hey, this task force might be uh, about inflicting more than just a superficial pain on the industry. Yeah, and it sure sounds like that's where they're going. I'm, I'm, I'm not – quite convinced that uh, that makes sense for, for Facebook, given the difficulties of making a, a violation of the terms of service of the uh, of the consent decree uh, stick. Uh, uh, the, that's that's hard to, uh, to do. And uh, uh, the only reason I think they would they would take a big settlement is if they think three years of fighting this in the court means three years of bad publicity over uh, Cambridge Analytica, and we can't take it. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so the theme of, at least one of the themes of the stories this uh, a week was just how big a mess big tech companies get into when they move from saying, hey, you know, the public says what the public says, and we got nothing to, uh, to do about it, to trying to moderate the behavior of the people they're acting as intermediaries for. And there's like three stories that all uh, touch on that. Uh, there's the fake paid Amazon reviews, where instead of Amazon enforcing rules about fake ads, the FTC has stepped in to, uh, to say, we too care about fake reviews. And then the uh, Amazon saying, we're going to let people who have um, uh, intellectual property, mainly trademarks, I suspect, uh, in a particular goods, tell us whether they think uh, something that's being offered by a third-party seller is a, uh, a, a, a counterfeit good or not authorized and just automatically take it down. So in that case, Amazon is saying, well, somebody else is going to make the decision. It won't be the FTC. It'll be the trademark holder. And then uh, there was a really shocking, uh, well, not shocking, but a, a disturbing story about what it's like to be a content moderator for Facebook uh, as a as a contractor, and the the PTSD that comes from watching people murdered on your screen and trying to decide decide whether that murder should be uh, allowed up or taken down. Uh, so, uh, you, all of you guys are, are are interested in that. Let me let me kick it off with uh, uh, with Gus. Uh, does this tell us that that we're never going to solve the problem of what content intermediaries should do? It's a really fascinating set of issues, and focusing just on the the first uh, example of the FTC case um, over uh, fake paid Amazon reviews. Why isn't Amazon addressing this? They're trying to address it, yes, but why does Amazon need the FTC? I don't know the extent to which Amazon and the FTC have been collaborating on this, but uh, why does Amazon need the FTC to be the legal enforcer here? Um, it's a interesting, don't you think it's, a dynamic, you know, interesting question there. Let me let me let me push on that because it seems to me uh, it's good for both of them. Uh, the FTC gets to be tough and bring their uh, uh, their big hammer to a new area where people are engaged in you know real fraud. The, 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 these are uh, these were pill pushers who were making claims about their pills that weren't true. Uh, at least that's what the consent decree says. And from 
Amazon's point of view, it's one more enforcer. So when they find something that is particularly egregious and they want to put the fear of God in the folks who've been generating these fake reviews, they refer to the FTC and then a, a much bigger hammer than Amazon wields comes down on these guys. Right. So there, there are a lot of stories we can tell. And I don't know which one is uh, the best for society, the best for technology, the most efficient. Is this an extra tool in Amazon's uh, uh, toolbox? Does this give more credibility to Amazon? How does this relate to um uh, the Instagram paid influencers uh, efforts by the uh, FTC. If we have the FTC playing a strong role here, does that um, free the platform's hand so that they feel like, hey, the FTC is the cop on the beat. We don't need to do as much here. I think there are a lot of uh, challenging questions and they all go to uh, uh, this issue of how platforms do content moderation. Um, it's a really hard uh, uh, nut to crack uh, we, interestingly, in this case, historically uh, have, uh, under Section 230, taken a, uh, uh, the platforms are going to develop technologies and rely on market forces and reputation, and that's going to be uh, uh, the backstop that we rely on. It's really fascinating if it is the case that Amazon has reached out to the FTC and said, hey, uh, uh, come give us an assist here. That's a really interesting new dynamic to see. Yeah. And, and who knows? I, I, I don't know that they did it, but uh, I can't think of a reason why they wouldn't think that this was a useful thing to do. Nick, uh, uh, your thoughts on these cases? Well, partly it's that moderation is necessary, but hard. So let's look at the Amazon example. Amazon wants to provide a mechanism for people to deal with trademark infringement. And it's a huge problem. So if you say search for Canada Goose Amazon, it's only counterfeit products. And it's a nightmare that Amazon has been aware of, but still, still goes on. So on one hand, it's a real problem that they have to deal with. On the other, the problem is, is uh, Amazon is going to do it in the most half-assed way possible and basically probably have an automated system. And what you're going to get is different online resellers fighting with each other in the Amazon marketplace, each claiming that the other is selling counterfeit goods. Oh, it, 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 so it, have, yes, because they, they, they all want to be at the top of the third-party seller list. And, uh, and so uh, false claims are going to abound. Correct. Yeah. And, and so... You going to have the real problem that Amazon is probably liable for some of the fake stuff that they knowingly sell at this point. But then again, also, what if the trademark is used to target third-party retail or resales, which are legal even if not authorized, and it's just going to be a nightmare for them. So uh, that, that tells you that um, uh, relying on third parties doesn't work. Um, uh, uh, but asking, you know, hiring contractors to do your screening creates a whole new set of problems. Quan, I don't know if you looked at that Verge article, but it, uh, uh, it raised the question whether you could get PTSD just sitting in a, uh, uh, a, a well-lit office in Phoenix looking at horrible content. Yeah, well, and look, in one sense, this can't be surprising, right? Because we've seen these types of impacts on others like law enforcement officials uh, who work against human trafficking and child pornography. 
But what the Verge article really underscores is the intangible costs of, you know, everyone else being able to share the latest birthday photo or the viral cat video. And, you know, when it comes to Facebook, the sheer scale of um, user-generated content uh, and, and the need for moderation, you know, just outstrips anything that any AI is able to do up until this point, although I think that's where the, the company is placing a lot of its hope and emphasis. So, you know, like extremist videos and things like that, they've actually gotten really good at hashing those videos and then be able to kind of pre-program the moderation AI so that it uh, it quickly identifies them and, and kicks them off before they ever make it to the public side of the of the website. But the reality is, is that, you know, Facebook has over a thousand content moderators in the U.S. and 15,000 globally, and they're adding to those numbers almost daily because of, you know, the political pressure they're facing in terms of, you know, foreign influence campaigns and, and, and the like. And these people usually get like three seconds to make a determination. They're getting a hose feed of some of the worst parts of humanity. And of course, that's going to take an impact on people. And I don't know that these companies have adequately considered those kind of intangible costs of, of, of the providing of their services. Yeah, if I uh, can uh, jump in. At a, a conference in Colorado, Silicon Flatirons, uh, early last month, I started uh, my remarks on a panel um, by saying, look, the basic problem is that people suck, and social media <laughs> lets us suck at scale. And the job of the moderators is to look into the, the soul of our lesser angels, the heart of uh, humanity's lesser angels, and figure out which of the lesser angels are the least bad. And that's not going to be great. And uh, the kind of the arc, the technological story here is um, one of, hey, we're going to do this by algorithm. Oh, wait, algorithms don't work. We need to throw people at this problem. Oh, wait. Oh, my God, what's happening to the people? We need to develop algorithms to do this. Um, and who, who knows if this is going to be a, a circle endlessly uh, uh, going, whether or not uh, at some point we're going to uh, jump off this roller coaster. It's also uh, uh, worth noting on uh, the trademark side, um, and actually this also gets us to the review side, I expect part of the story with what Amazon is doing with its marketplace sellers is the Google Equistech case. So uh, for those who don't remember, uh, Google Equistech, this is a Canadian case dealing with counterfeit goods. Um, and the Canadian courts issued an order saying, hey, Google, you need to stop, uh, you need to de-index uh, these products. Um, and uh, there's been a big fight over U.S. versus Canadian law, First Amendment principles, uh, comedy principles, and how to uh, implement this. Um, and Amazon probably sees, hey, wait, this could be coming for us too. Let's try to forestall this by putting in place a system to deal with these concerns. So maybe courts will be nicer to us. Yeah. Okay. So we're running low on time. I'm going to ask you, uh, uh, Gus, uh, to talk about one last story, just so I can make reference to Peter Sellers in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, the, the, the story is that, uh, talk about sucking at scale, uh, uh, people are looking for ways to hack prosthetic arms. Yeah, so there isn't much to say other than, duh, people uh, are, are doing this. Now, the uh, the actual story isn't quite as Peter Sellers. Um, hopefully, I'm not going to preempt you with uh, the reference. It's uh, these devices, the hacking, uh, it's the information feeds going from the devices up to uh, the manufacturer for uh, uh, diagnostic and monitoring purposes. This isn't yet uh, our friend Vladimir being able to hack into your prosthetic arm and get you to hit the red missile launch button. Um, I guess he wouldn't 
quantum missiles launched, but it's not controlling the arms yet. Though I will add, we have been starting to see in the realm of synthetic biology uh, a discussion about implanting uh, uh, vulnerabilities or exploiting vulnerabilities through uh, biological threat vectors. So perhaps uh, that is our future, even without the prosthetics. Okay. Uh, well, you know, we, we talked a lot about the, the perils of content med- moderation, and we're going to have now a, an interview with people who are trying to do a kind of privatized content uh, evaluation process aimed at one of the toughest uh, political and internet policy issues around, which is uh, fake news and uh, uh, media bias, or at least how to police fake news without introducing media bias. Uh, So let's turn now to our interview with Steve Brill and Gordon Kravitz. So let me... um, do a bit of an introduction, although it would be easy for this to take the entire half hour uh, that we've set aside for the interview. Uh, um, I'm talking to the two co-founders of NewsGuard, uh, uh, both of whom, you know, I think it's fair to say they may have been responsible for all of the money that anybody in journalism has made uh, as actual profits uh, uh, from the internet. Uh, um, uh, Gordon Kravitz uh, helped create the um, online presence of the Wall Street Journal when he was publisher there uh, I, and uh, uh, turned it into a money-making machine, which is the envy of the rest of mainstream media. Uh, he's also been uh, uh, someone who has started uh, uh, institutions aimed at helping uh, companies, uh, uh, media companies, get paid for their stories. Uh, he did that with Steve Brill. Uh, he's still a journalist, uh, uh, still writes an op-ed uh, uh, opinion uh, column, but is also now a serial entrepreneur. Uh, Steve Brill is even more of a serial entrepreneur and has a, a career uh, that, uh, to an outside observer, consists of writing a really thoughtful book or article about a topic getting it published in a a well-regarded book or journal, and then going beyond that to say, well, we can solve this problem, developing policy approaches and usually building a business around it. So, uh, you know, when lawyers were riding high high after Watergate, uh, uh, he started the American lawyer to uh, report on uh, law as a business uh, and transformed law, not necessarily in a good way, but certainly did transform it. Uh, He went on from there to start Court TV um, uh, and uh, uh, went on from there, interestingly, after September 11, wrote a book uh, about what went wrong and what we should be doing in the September 12 environment, uh, uh, and then um, put his money where his mouth is and formed Clear, or at least the predecessor of Clear, uh, that uh, many of us use to get uh, a kind of uh, a faster uh, treatment in the TSA lines uh, by ex- uh, offering more personal information. Now, together, they are doing NewsGuard. Um, uh, so I- I'll let you quarrel with my uh, bios, uh, but uh, let me ask the first question, which is, uh, what is the elevator pitch for NewsGuard? How do you how do you tell investors and uh, 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 media outlets what NewsGuard does? Sure, it's the difference between um, it tells people the difference between the Denver Guardian and the Denver Post. The Denver Guardian was a phony website 
uh, set up uh, just before the 2016 elections with a bunch of crazy stories about Hillary Clinton. And the Denver Post is a real newspaper. The Denver Guardian did everything it could to look and feel and read like the Denver Post, except it was bogus. And the internet allows that, allows everyone to be a publisher, and uh, doesn't give uh, people who see a news feed on uh, a Facebook news feed, a Twitter news feed, or do a Google search, gives them no idea of who's behind what they're reading, how reliable is it, what can they count on, and what can't they count on, the way they could if they went to a library and talked to a librarian, or if they went to a newsstand and just looked at the brands arrayed on uh, uh, the racks of a newsstand. It's that simple. And you're doing this with actual people as opposed to trying to do it with an algorithm. This is an area where we think human intelligence is actually better than artificial intelligence. We do this because the problem that we're trying to solve is at its core a journalistic problem, and we're trying to solve it journalistically. We have journalists who are applying nine basic standards of journalistic practice to websites that purport to be doing journalism, uh, many of which, of course, are but the depressingly high number of which are doing something else. And by applying those nine basic criteria of journalistic practice, we're able to tell readers, is this a generally reliable news website, or is this generally not reliable? So you've been doing this for about six months, is that right? Launched our free browser plug-in product, which is being used by libraries across the country and by consumers, at the end of August, beginning of September. So that's for six months, yeah. Okay. So um, I, I took a look at uh, what people had to say about this. You had some bumps in the road. You had uh, uh, people uh, criticizing you for uh, uh, giving a green check mark to Fox News. Uh, you had uh, Boing Boing, which is a famous um, old uh, uh, kind of uh, hippie internet uh, site uh, uh, that must have said, uh, who the hell are these guys uh, uh, and uh, where do they get off judging us, uh, complaining that you had not given them a green check. And then the Daily Mail complained bitterly, uh, saying basically we're the most we're among the most conservative uh, uh, news sites in the world and among the most popular news sites in the world, and you don't give us a green check, uh, this is bias. Uh, how did all that play out, and what well, lessons the, did you learn? What the Daily Mail and Boing Boing, or whatever it's called, have in common is that what we do is, because we're journalists, we call everyone for comment before we publish a single negative word about them in any of the nine criteria. So even if they're going to get a green, but they have fallen short on one of the nine, we call them for comment. In the case of the Daily Mail, uh, we called them or emailed them four different times. One time we actually got through to someone in the newsroom, we explained what we were doing, and the journalist on the other end of the phone hung up on us. Now that doesn't affect our rating, but it does affect our ability to get comment Sometimes when you get comment, if you're a real journalist, when you get comment, the comment changes your mind. So we put that rating for the Daily Mail up at the end of August, and the Guardian happened to write about it about three or four weeks ago, and that's when the Daily Mail got angry and said, uh, the first thing they said was, well, why didn't you call us? And we showed them all kinds of paperwork and notes that said we called them. And the second thing they said is, well, we want to talk about this. And we said, we're delighted to talk about it. And in the course of talking about it, they changed one of their practices uh, 
to make themselves more transparent. And we changed our minds about one of our assessments, uh, one of the nine criteria. And long story short, they went from a red to a green. Now, I don't consider that a bump in the road. I consider that the road. Because what we are doing is we are conducting a completely transparent practice, a, an ongoing practice where we're constantly updating our ratings. And as I explained to uh, the senior editorial person at the Daily Mail, who we talked to a lot, I said, look at what we're doing. You're, you're complaining to us about your rating, and yet you have a reliability rating from Facebook and Google and Twitter, and that rating really affects your bank account. That rating really affects how many people see your stuff, and you have no idea what your rating is with them. And if you had any idea, you wouldn't have anyone to call. And if you figured out who to call, you wouldn't know what to talk about because they wouldn't tell you how they arrived at that rating. Look at the difference in the process. So what we're all about is the transparency of that process and the accountability. And we want people to game our system. Unlike an algorithm, A, we call people for comment, and B, we want them to game the system. We want them to do what the Daily Mail did, which is say, gee, we ought to list on our website who's in charge so that if someone has a complaint, they know to whom to complain. Um, so that's not a bump in our road. I mean, we have, you know, a dozen bumps like that every day, and that's part of that's part of why we started the company. Just to put a number on, on that of the 2,300 websites that we've rated, more than 500 of them, after engaging with our analysts, has changed one or more of their own journalistic practices. So it's not just boing boing in the Daily Mail, but it's a, you know, very long list of well-known publishers like Reuters and Fortune and you know, some that are probably not all that well-known to your listeners, like endtimesheadlines.com. You know, so very small websites, large ones, uh, once they understand uh, the criteria that we use, in many, many cases now are adjusting their journalistic practice, which, you know, we think is, in the long run, going to help reestablish trust in news organizations that deserve to be more trusted than they are now. Yeah, I you know so I I am struck by the difference between Silicon Valley's view, which is we can't tell you anything because then you'll game the system, and your view that no, we we want to publish our standards because we think they're standards everybody can live by and should live by, and if you meet them, we will give you the check. Uh, um, that that has real advantages and real power. It it it. it produces changes, as you said, in uh, uh, people's behavior, I, it strikes me... It's not our power. It's their power. You, again, you know, the gaming of the system uh, belongs you know, in the hands of the gamer. Um, and, you know, we would love to have every single site rated 100% Yes, but you're you're writing the rules for the game, so uh, uh, you you do have power in the sense that if you decided to uh, to add a tenth uh, factor, uh, lots of people uh, who benefit from having a green check would uh, immediately go to check to see that they uh, uh, met the tenth factor as well. That's true. So I actually downloaded your uh, um, your extension for uh, uh, for Chrome and installed it, uh, and then went looking at sites to see 
I, and I, I will confess, I uh, expected this to be the revenge of mainstream media, then that uh, um, everybody that they didn't like competing with would not get a green check, and that uh, everybody uh, uh, who had a, a reputation in 1995 would get a, a green check more or less automatically, uh, and that there would be a, a, a lefty bias to, uh, uh, to the process. Um, I'm not sure that's how I come out of this, although I certainly have some quarrels with some of the uh, sites that you uh, um, uh, categorized. Uh, but you, as as you have said, uh, uh, you gave the green check to uh, the Daily Mail and to uh, um, Fox News, and they certainly don't lean to the left. Uh, and so that raises for me, I guess, the the, the concern that this is only a partial response to some of the, the um, issues that have been raised in uh, um, in discussions of fake news, because buried under that has been an effort to get control of the narrative uh, uh, and to say there are people who are talking that we think should just shut up uh, uh, and to turn them in for hate speech or what have you. Uh, the, your standards actually only touch on whether there's liberal or conservative bias in the site, and the Daily Mail is is one example. And you you gave you gave um, uh, green checks to organizations that I think of as smear machines, like Media Matters and the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, uh, or the Intercept, which is uh, uh, has a, a political axe to grind in every story they uh, uh, produce. And I, uh, is it your view that? You just should not try to say, oh, they're biased, um, uh, or uh, is there something more subtle going on here? Well, no, we do say they're biased. Read the label. It sounds like you just looked at the green and didn't bother to read the nutrition. I, 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 I didn't read everything, no. In every single case you mentioned, we pointed out their bias, but um, in, in most of those cases, they informed users, they inform users of their bias. So. Let's take the you know the National Review or the Nation. Um, you go to either of those websites, and they tell you where they're coming from, which is markedly different from let's say Breitbart, where they don't explain any any bias or political point of view at all. When we all know, including them, that they have one, and they acknowledge it when they talk about themselves. Our test is: Do they inform a 15-year-old who sees a feed from Breitbart on um, a Twitter feed or a Google search, does that 15-year-old have a way of knowing you know, who are these people and where are they coming at issues from? If that 15-year-old sees something from the Daily Signal, from the Heritage Foundation, or from the National Review, or from the Nation, uh, they are fully informed about that. Not the case uh, with Breitbart. That's our standard. It's not whether it's, it's liberal or... Uh, you know, conservative, and it's not even necessarily whether they have a bias, it's whether they inform people of that bias. Then the test is, you know, once they've informed people, do they so egregiously cherry-pick facts to make an argument that the argument isn't really a legitimate argument? So let me ask about that. Let me push on that because uh, uh, if Breitbart was so inclined, could they uh, game this system just by uh, 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 putting a banner on their uh, uh, site that said, uh, 
you know, uh, the premier conservative take on uh, um, uh, the day's news? Trust, that's not gaming the system. That's transparency. Yeah, for sure. That, that, would, that would help a lot. And, and, you know, the way we think about this, and I think having downloaded the browser extension, I think the way you would think about this also is we are apolitical by design. In other words, we're not measuring, you know, a political point of view, left or right, or something like that. Our nine criteria are basic journalistic criteria. There's not a conservative or liberal way to have a corrections policy or to disclose or not disclose who owns it or who's in charge or if it has a point of view, whatever that point of view might be. So uh, let me let me ask you quickly about one of my favorite sites, uh, which you give a uh, uh, red mark to, uh, well, indirectly, uh, Instapundit, uh, which is, um, I would say... In some respects, like Drudge, uh, more of an aggregator with comment, uh, a, a sort of editorial selection uh, process in which they link to a bunch of other sites with uh, um, snarky or uh, uh, other uh, comments designed to set a frame on the story. I, a, I've never, unlike Drudge, which does occasionally link to Infowars and and you know sort of nutty um, uh, uh, fake stuff, uh, uh, I've never seen that on Instapundit. You guys reviewed Instapundit as part of PJ Media and dinged them, I think, because there was a story on PJ Media by somebody who did a bunch of um, internet research with Google searches and found that uh, uh, Google was sending a lot of the traffic to uh, um, left-leaning uh, uh, sites, uh, which they included, and they included mainstream media uh, uh, as left-leaning in most of those cases. Uh, I have to say that story w- struck me as as saying pretty clearly what was done and what was the result, and to, to say, well, we're going to Take the site as not producing uh, legitimate news uh, because of that. Now there were, there were other stories, but that one struck me as uh, a kind of subtle bias that uh, um, you ought to be spending more time trying to overcome. So let me let me address that. Um, Insta, this is Gordon Instapun. It's actually one of my favorite uh, sources. Also, here's the issue: PJ Media uh, is an aggregator, as you say, of conservative opinion. I think they would all acknowledge that. They don't disclose that anywhere. In other words, they present stories on that domain, on that website, as if it were a, a news site without any disclosure of its orientation. By the way, no disclosure about ownership and some other disclosure they issues also. They don't label advertising. Right. They don't have a corrections policy. So there's a lot going on there that, you know, that leads to a negative rating. You also, I think, mentioned some story where they they said there was election fraud in Michigan when there unambiguously was not election fraud. But PJ Media is a good example of one where, uh, through normal, basic disclosure, uh, they would have dealt with quite a number of those issues and they would have made it clear to readers that when you're on PJ Media, you're seeing opinion columns, not news reports. And so that's, that is an example of one of the websites that has not changes practices yet in response to our criteria, but perhaps they will. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 they, they should, I, you should think about whether aggregator sites ought to be treated differently, whether you ought to give the, uh, the checks to the 
uh, the links as opposed to the site uh, overall. Uh, we thought about that a lot. We spent a lot of time thinking about that when we were working with Drudge, and we decided that one of the tests is do, do the aggregators aggregate in a, shall we say, heavy-handed editorial way, so that the, you know, like for example, you know, Drudge links regularly to Infowars. Yeah, and I can't. I'm not going to justify that. Uh, uh, that's Drudge's failing, in my view. You know, he links to RT, and that that matters. Now, here, I mean, I can tell you, we are in discussions with them. You know, they're talking to us about uh, changing some of their practices, and if they do, we'll be, you know, we'll be delighted. So um, the president actually went out of his way to to to, to uh, uh, attack you. Uh, uh, that's kind of a badge of honor these days that he noticed and uh, uh, went after you. Uh, uh, he was complaining about media matters, which is another one of these uh, 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 lefty smear machines. We, we, we'd be, we'd be, we're honored by any publicity, but just to clarify, we think that was the president's son. So that was Donald Trump. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, well. So you've got, yeah. you, you still and got one he, more uh, mountain to climb. <laughs> and he maligned media matters because he, he and what he did was he said, Media Matters said that the, what's his name, the guy who did the hoax attack on himself, um, Paulette or something, you know, said that Media Matters said they still don't believe that, that this was a hoax, or, or they don't believe this was a hoax. They did say that about six hours after the attack, but within days, they, like everybody else, said, yeah, it, it was a hoax, but uh, you know, Donald Jr. Uh, decided not to remember that. Also, Media Matters gets uh, 62 and a half or 65, so it comes under the category of not all humans are created equal. And the third thing I'll say about it is that its counterpart... AIM, right? Yeah, one of those also gets a B. Yep, okay. Uh, well, and I will say, uh, uh, I found myself very quickly finding value in those checks. When I'm doing research for this program and I'm looking at stories, I, it, it was nice to know, okay, this is a story from somebody who thinks of themselves as subject to journalistic standards. That doesn't mean it won't be biased, uh, but at least it gives me some reason to think that the facts there are likely to be accurate. And well, and that's really valuable. Well, you know, it also, you know, we always say we're not solving all the problems of the world. We can do, you know, nothing about the fact that um, if Judy Miller you know, gets another job, and writes that there are weapons of mass destruction um, in Iraq, and she gets that story in the New York Times, that's one terrible story, but it, may, it probably won't affect the rating of the New York Times. We're rating news sites, not the individual accuracy of a reporter or of a particular article. So I would, I would, I would suggest and I, uh, uh, that you might want to uh, take a look at some of the standards you're using for uh, some of these uh, uh, ratings and apply them retroactively. Uh, you know, for example, the question of how quickly people uh, corrected the Covington uh, uh, school kid story. Um, there were real variations, is my impression, in how quickly people responded to the need to correct a story that played to the left. Uh, and so it would be useful to see whether, uh, in fact, there are disparities and those ought to be uh, noted in your uh, uh, nutritional statement. Yeah, I'm constantly doing updates. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think in that that's a, a good example of one where uh, sites have uh, corrected the record. It may have taken some a little bit longer.
longer than others, but it's not taken days or weeks. Uh, so, but that's exactly the sort of thing that we do look at to be sure that publishers who publish something that's not true or publish it in a way that uh, later turns out not to be true clarify well, the record. You know, Breitbart still has, uh, still has uh, Seth Rich on Pizzagate on its website. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. So, uh, let me ask this. Uh, um, uh, Steve, I think of you as leaning left, maybe not in Manhattan, but the, the country as a whole. And of course, I think I first noticed Gordon when he was writing uh, in defense of the Reagan administration uh, on the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, the op-ed page. Uh, uh, do you find yourself... Just to clarify, Stuart, I sometimes attack the Reagan administration as not being sufficiently conservative. <laughs> yes. I, and and was, it, was it Steve Brill... A Steve Brill publication that did a picture of you where he squashed your face uh, so that the top half of your forehead was missing and the bottom of your chin. It was called the Daily Diatribe of the American Right. I'm very proud of it. Written by Stuart Taylor. Ah. But I will, um, I will say you're half right. Um, I, I would say if you ask uh, Randy Weingarten of the Teachers Union or your old colleague, uh, you know Tom Ridge. I don't think either one of them would say I'm a liberal. I'm a liberal on certain stuff, but certainly when it comes to you know the United States uh, having a healthcare system that is equal to or better than all the other developed countries in the world, I'd probably you'd probably call me a liberal for that. But um, no, I don't agree with that. I tend to call things down. Okay. Okay. You mentioned it, but you know, but you're forgetting uh, to the extent that. Um, my 9-11 book uh, was criticized. It was criticized from the left, certainly not by Tom Ridge or anyone in the Bush administration. Just to further defend my business partner, the famous story about rubber rooms where public school teachers were sent rather than actually being separated from the system was written by Steve. So, But I, I'm happy to be characterized the way you characterize me. Okay. Well, in, and, uh, you know, you... you uh, I think NewsGuard probably needs an ambassador to the right because of the assumption is going to be that anybody who's who's grading uh, websites is doing so to protect uh, uh, the New York Times uh, and uh, mainstream media's uh, dominance. Uh, um, and I, uh, you know, I'm, I I conclude from looking at what you've done that that's not how this is going to end up. Um, but I do want to ask some business questions because you guys are also real businessmen, uh, and uh, uh, it's impressive to find somebody who, uh, you know, has been uh, a, a lawyer, has been a journalist, who can do anything in the business world. So uh, you're uh, uh, continuing to start organizations and uh, and then sell them uh, is impressive. And I I just want to ask. Uh, uh, was it really only $6 million in seed money that you needed to get this thing off the ground? That was to uh, get it off the ground and launch and done for the U.S. market. We're actually now expanding into European markets. The European Commission is very exercised about this topic, uh, as are domestic governments in the U.K. and France and elsewhere. But yes, we raised uh, $6 million and... I know your next question is going to be, what's our business model, which is we think that the companies that happen to be among the most valuable companies in the world that caused this problem, even if inadvertently, that they should be the ones to help solve it. So our business model is to license our ratings and Christian label write-ups to the social media companies, the search companies, browsers, 
digital platforms generally so that they can give their users information about the general reliability of new sources in their products without themselves as technology companies uh, committing the unnatural act of themselves trying to determine which journalistic entities are generally reliable, which ones are not. Oh, they don't dare do that. Uh, they, they lose Section 230, I think, over that is my guess. Uh, um, so uh, it, it does make sense from their point of view to have somebody else doing this. Uh, but that means that uh, essentially they're paying to be able to bring um, into their ecosystem what the um, – uh, the extensions make available to anybody who who browses with a uh, with a browser. That's that's right. That's exactly it. But it'd be us and and our competitors. We we hope we have competitors because we don't want you know we're not trying to be seen as the sole arbiters of all content around the world. And what we want is to have taken the first step. We assume we'll have competitors who realize the value of uh, human intelligence. And maybe some really dumb ones who think they can do it with artificial intelligence, and then you know the uh, the companies, God knows, can afford to license four or five of us and let people make the decision about which one they want to use. Yeah, I, no, it it makes a lot of sense to uh, uh, to be able to uh, do this. Uh, I wonder if though you can make money or are comfortable making money negotiating with you know. Google or Facebook or some even Twitter is enormous by your standards, uh, uh, and their leverage uh, is going to be pretty substantial. Um, do you do you see yourself dealing with advertisers as well? Well, with advertisers for a brand safety plan, but to come back to your first question, uh, the bigger they are, the more comfortable we are, uh, you know, being able to charge them uh, what this is worth, uh, what it's worth to them, and what it's worth to their users. And what will keep the lights on? Um, and, and I don't think they have all the leverage because, again, um, when you get outside the United States and even ultimately in the United States, they're going to be made to do something like this. And they're not going to want to do it themselves. And they're going to want to do it with people who are perceived as reputable and who know what they're doing. And I, I, I'd observe that our first technology partner is Microsoft, which depending on the month, is the most valuable company in the world, or certainly one of them. And, I, you know, Microsoft has said publicly that they take these kinds of issues seriously. They have a group within the company called the Defend Defending Democracy Program. So there are uh, uh, companies at different uh, levels, and Microsoft has taken the lead, and we're delighted by that. Yeah, uh, uh, if, if they weren't if they weren't turning the engine of the Edge browser over to uh, to Google to uh, uh, design, uh, it would be uh, would forecast a better future. Uh, I'm not sure whether uh, their use of your system will survive that uh, that change. Our understanding is that they plan to compete with services around the browser as opposed to just the software itself. All right, and and what about? Let me ask the last question, the exit question. Uh, uh, I I don't know for the reasons you just laid out. Uh, um, uh, big Silicon Valley companies are not going to want to own this process, and therefore they're not going to want to own NewsGuard. Uh, uh, does this mean you're basically going to be running this business for the long haul? It wouldn't bother me. It wouldn't bother us, but you know we're we're an early entrant into the trust business. 
and you think it's going to be a big business. It's as big a business as the trust problems that have been created throughout our institution. So we will see, but we're very happy uh, to remain independent. All right. Uh, Steve Brill, Gordon Kravitz, uh, uh, it's been it's a pleasure. And I will say I am a somewhat reluctant convert to this process I uh, and this product. Uh, I wasn't sure I was going to like it. And I ex- kind of expected that it was going to uh, be about um, uh, squashing uh, alternative points of view. And it's not. Uh, I, and it does have real value. So uh, I hope that the uh, the folks at Instapundit um, uh uh, game your system effectively uh, so that I can uh, uh, read them uh, without having to worry about the check. And uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, the interview. Any last words, any events that you're going to be uh, uh, in, any uh, products or papers you'll be releasing that uh, people should be looking for? I think the main thing we'd say is, you know, we hope that others will download our free browser extension at newsguardtech.com. And we Thank you for trying it, and we're grateful that you liked it. And don't be reluctant. You know, when you say you're reluctant, that's revealing your bias, not ours. Yes, it is. I, I, well, anybody who listens to this knows my bias. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, thanks to Gordon, Gordon Kravitz. Thanks to Steve Brills. Thanks to Nick Weaver and Gus Hurwitz and Con Kitchen for joining me. This has been episode 253 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And don't forget, uh, if you suggest an interview guest uh, and they come on the show, uh, we will send you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, just send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter, where I occasionally and only occasionally uh, uh, flag the stories that I'm looking at. Uh, uh, please do rate the show. We'll leave a review. Uh, we have uh, a bunch of reviews that we got uh, um, uh, this week, uh, some of them pretty uh, amusing. Uh, uh, here's one from Jag Queen, which I have to say, uh, if you're going to choose a, a handle, Jag Queen is uh, remarkably good, uh, uh, who says, um, uh, worth the time, insightful, sarcastic, American, every podcast should be like this. Uh, and then just for balance, uh, Smulligan said, host makes every cyber issue a partisan issue. Host is very opinionated, which makes him interesting, but he makes every other story about partisanship and liberal bias. It's distracting and not the point of the show, but the others on the show manage to be equally informative without making everything political. Uh, and then finally, uh, I, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, uh, there's a uh, comment uh, entitled, Do Not Jam the Killer Drones, uh, who says, uh, I highly recommend the Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast to anyone interested in cybersecurity unless they uh, support Apple's stance on encryption and backdoors, in which case uh, I recommend they dip their iPhone in water to make sure their software is up to date. Um, uh, he also calls uh, me a national treasure and responsible for uh, his favorite podcast of all time. So I, uh, I, 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 I have to say I liked the, um, uh, the deeply personal nature of that. Uh, if you disagree with any of those, and it would be hard not to disagree with at least one of them, uh, please leave your own review uh, on uh, uh, Stitcher or uh, Pocket Cast or Apple uh, so that uh, more people can 
understand what the show is about. Uh, coming up, we've got Elsa Kanya, uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, China technology analysts from the Center for New American Security. We've got Amy Ziegart to Stanford's Hoover, Hoover Institution, Adam Segal of the um, Council on Foreign Relations. I, I want to thank Christy Jorge, uh, who's our producer, uh, and uh, say goodbye to Lori Paul, who has been a terrific supporter and who is moving on to um, do other things uh, at a different firm. Um, so we will miss her. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Uh, Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.